there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! With one ferocious soundtrack, the Riot Girl movement launched feminism into the forefront of the punk rock world. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Today, we look at the legacy of Riot Girl 25 years later. And we review new albums from Drake and Radiohead. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Dami Im with a song called Sound of Silence, an Australian singer who nearly won the Eurovision contest over the weekend, Jim. Yes, the World Cup of European Song, Eurovision. It's been around since 1968. 200 million worldwide viewers last year. First time broadcast in the United States this year on the Logo Network. Interesting that it's starting to expand into the U.S. in addition to its dominance in Europe. Uh, Past winners have included ABBA, Celine Dion, Katrina and the Waves. What's the big news out of there this year, Jim? Well, Greg, the reason we cover this every year is it gets stranger every year, and there's a political tempest every year stemming from who the winner is. The winner of Eurovision this year is a Ukrainian artist, Greg, named Jamala. What's interesting about her tune is not the music, all right? It's a (laughs) typical overblown Eurovision ballad, okay? But in the lyrics of the song 1944, she is talking about her Crimean Tartar grandmother and the ethnic Crimeans who were deported en masse by Stalin during the final days of World War II, forced to leave their homeland. When strangers are coming, they come to your house. They kill you all and say we're not guilty, not guilty. Where is your heart? Humanity cries. You think you're gods, but everyone dies. Don't swallow my soul. Our souls. Why is that interesting? Right now, of course, the former Soviet Republic is once again unlawfully annexing the Crimea, according to many political scientists. That's one way to put it. And it's become a flashpoint in the last year or two. Uh, So once again, you, you have someone commenting on current politics. When she accepted her award, she wished everyone peace and love. I know that you you sing song about peace and love. But actually, I really want peace and love to everyone. Thank you, Ibra! 
from Ukraine! Welcome to Ukraine! So a very timely political comment. No surprise, Greg. This made Russia upset. Russia was number three. So it was Ukraine number one, Australia number two, Russia's at number three. You may remember that the deputy prime minister of Russia two years ago when we had Austria's winner, Conchita Verst, a self-identified male drag queen. When he won, he was outraged by this. And this year, he is outraged by Ukraine winning with a commentary that seems to uh, uh, cast aspersions on Russian politics. Next time, said the deputy prime minister of Russia, we will send this popular lead singer of the group, Leningrad, who's known for his crude nationalism. Uh, it does not matter whether he wins or not. The message will be clear. I'm you know, in many ways, given the contentious history of Europe, uh, you know, Napoleon and World War II and centuries before, it's better that they're fighting over pop songs than real estate. But, but still, you know, Eurovision, it, what a strange combination of utterly forgettable but weird music and nationalistic politics. So you thought you might like to go to the show To feel the warmth from of confusion that space could get blown big story in the concert industry this week, Jim, is that uh, classic rock is coming to the desert in a big way. <laughs> I, I know you already have your tickets for Desert Trip. All these 60s icons, six of them to be precise, Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, Roger Waters, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, The Who, that is your lineup for what is being built as Desert Trip at the same location in Indio, California as Coachella, that music festival that uh, occurs every April. Now, the same promoter that does Coachella, Golden Voice, is also promoting Desert Trip along with another big national promoter, AEG. And the big news here is that we have the highest box office gross in concert history apparently being achieved with sales that uh, they just blew out every ticket. $150 uh, million, is that right? $150 million worth of tickets in a couple of hours for two weekends, October 9, 10, 11, October 16, 17, 18, completely sold out, $150 million bucks. Tickets going as high as $1,600. Those are reserve seats. There's a GA price topping out at $399. Oh, what a bargain. I know that you're going for the desert package, Jim, with the uh, the resort hotel and everything, $6,000 and up. Those packages are, are also sold I'm out. I'm telling apparently. you, Greg, if people are paying this kind of money for what has already been kind of cruelly dubbed Old Cella. They ought to air condition the desert. So I was thinking, Jim, what bands of today would command that kind of money 30 years from now? Bands that started, let's say, in the early 90s through today. Uh, and I'm thinking like Dave Matthews Band, maybe, Pearl Jam, Coldplay, Foo Fighters, Radiohead, Green Day, six bands that I think 30 years from now might still be able to draw a bunch of people to the desert. You know? I'm going to be pretty sad if some of those bands are still around in 30 years. But let's throw it out to the listeners, Greg. Who do you think will still have a career and command ticket prices in the thousands of dollars after 50 years in the game? So 30 years down the road. Give us a call. Leave a message on our hotline. 888-859-1800. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution. Girls don't know. Hey, girlfriend. I got a proposition. Go 
That is Double Daria from a band called Bikini Kill. They say, we want revolution girl style now. (laughs) This was a manifesto from the early 90s as part of this riot girl movement in music and politics. Riot girl, girl spelled with three R's, no I, girl. Girl. Uh, Yes, indeed. And we want to take a look at it because it has influenced a lot of music, a lot of messaging that you see out there uh, over the last couple of decades. But it started here in this in this very much DIY movement. I mean, when you think about the Spice Girls appropriating girl power or Avril Lavigne sending these kind of messages out in pop songs, you see these lady fests popping around uh, all over the country or girl rock camps. These are all the legacy of this little movement that started in Washington, D.C. and the Pacific Northwest in the rock underground in the early 90s. It was a radical feminist movement of young women that specifically addressed issues like gender, patriarchy, rape, sexual harassment, domestic abuse in a very explicit and confrontational manner and uh, tied it up with a very confrontational brand of punk rock music. I mean, there was no doubt about what these women were singing about. They were singing to other young women and empowered them and said, go out in the world and change the way the world works. You know, and Riot Girl is still important, Greg, 25 years after the movement's inception, way back in 1991. In 2011, we talked to Sarah Marcus, a musician and author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl revolution. You know, in her book, Sarah focuses on Riot Girl history from 1989 to 1994. And I asked her how she'd define the start of the Riot Girl movement. Riot Girl really gets its start in the summer of 1991, in which two things happen. One thing that happens is members of the band Bikini Kill and the band Bratmobile move to Washington, D.C. for a summer where they begin making a zine that is titled Riot Girl Mm -hmm. and call a meeting, and the meetings keep happening in D.C. Shortly after the first meeting happens, the bands drive back to Olympia to play at Girl Day at the International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia. So the opening event of this sort of family reunion of the the indie underground circa 1991 is a night in which every performer has to have significant female input. These two events, the meetings plus the zines on the one coast and the show on the other coast, coalesce this feeling of critical mass of, wow, there's enough energy around using punk rock and DIY as a way to express our anger about sexism, to express our identities as women trying to come up with a liberated way to be women Mm -hmm. in a society that makes that really hard. It all ignited at once. So the um, the prehistory, 89 to 91, that I cover is just the history, basically, of Kathleen Hanna. She's working at a domestic violence shelter. She's doing her spoken word. I left it in your Chevy window because you made me angry. I busted in your Chevy window because you made me mad. She goes and meets her hero, the writer Kathy Acker, who tells her, well, if you really want people to listen to you, spoken word is not exactly the best way to reach a larger audience, a band. You need to start playing music. Well, it's fascinating how music has become an outlet for this kind of feminism. 
We saw some of that in, in the late 70s, where the scene started to get populated, the punk scene, more democratically. Yes. What was the context for the surge in the late 80s, early 90s? Because obviously stuff was happening in the world that galvanized these young women to feel like they needed a, a stronger, louder voice to get their message out. Well, there's two sides of that. And one is something that you alluded to a little when you talked about how much more democratic punk was in the late 70s than it would be in the decade to follow, in which, you know, this very macho form of hardcore became the dominant aesthetic in punk rock. And it was an aesthetic that was not super welcoming to most women. So you have this going on on the musical side. And then on the political side, what you have is that in trying to chip away at the successes that the women's liberation movement had in the 60s and 70s, the right wing is really targeting young women. One of the main fronts of the fight over reproductive rights in 1991-92 is the question of young women's reproductive rights and the parental consent laws are being passed across the country. And, um, and even in the the presidential election in 1992, where George H.W. Bush is fighting for re-election against this challenger, Bill Clinton, the differences between them are even being figured along the lines of their differing opinions as to what teenage girls should be able to do with their bodies. Also in 91, people are starting to wake up to the fact that teenagers are getting infected with HIV because there's inadequate sexual education. So there's this amazing sense in which the stakes of one's body in adolescence in the early 90s seem just perilously high and the messages are completely nonsensical. You can't make sense of how you're actually supposed to be because the ideals of feminism are clashing so dramatically with the enduring realities of limitations on what young women can do, how they can behave, continued stratified gender roles about what is a man, what is a woman. It's a big clash, and I think that Riot Girl, in its screams and its messiness, was really expressing the frustration of trying to craft an identity against a backdrop of such hideously contradictory messages and forces. It's fascinating too, Sarah, about this movement that starts out very small. It's, it's a handful of people, really. And it becomes this nationwide phenomenon over the next few mm -hmm. years. And we're, let's not forget, we're talking about the pre-internet era here. You know, you, like mm -hmm. you, couldn't, you couldn't blog or text about it. it yeah, essentially, there was no Facebook group. Yes, it was a word <laughs> of mouth thing. The records were put out by small independent labels. How did this message spread into this nationwide phenomenon? Well, it spread in a couple of ways. One of the ways was just bands would go around and sell zines and pass the word along. Bikini Kill amassed a mailing list. Everywhere that they played, they would get people to write down their addresses, and then everybody on the mailing list got flyers that would have the tour dates for other bands. So the very you know carrier pigeon hmm. nature of a band that was constantly touring around the country 
and telling people about things was one extremely important way. Word also then spread through zines as, pe- you know, people would make zines and then write the addresses of other zines. And so very frequently you would get your hands on one and then you would just write away for every single other zine that was reviewed in that issue. And that was a major way that people were, and young people, people who weren't out of high school yet, were sharing ideas and trying to elaborate, you know, a, a movement with one another over great distances. Now, the third thing that I'm going to say, it's um, it's complex, but the mainstream media helped a lot. I found out about Riot Grrrl from reading an article in Newsweek that many people felt never should have been written. Mm-hmm. There was so much mainstream media attention. And of course, an article in USA Today or an article in Spin is not going to get things as right as a fanzine. But It opens up a door. And I think that the crux, the core substance of Riot Girl, which was essentially a pair of words, Riot, we're all together and we're doing something. And girl, we're taking the word girl, which is, oh, you're such a girl. And girl, making Mm -hmm. it fierce. That's Toby Vale's and um, Jen Smith's brilliance to recognize that that word pair was going to have such an impact. For people who don't know, Sarah, tell us who they were. Toby Vale was the drummer and sometimes singer of Bikini Kill, and she also wrote a tremendously marvelous zine titled Jigsaw. Mm-hmm. And it was in writing her zine that she came up with the idea to spell girl with three R's. Now, on the other side of the country, Jen Smith, who's now a marvelous artist and pickler and was in the band The Quails, but at the time she was a DC scene kid who was friends with the girls of Bratmobile. And, um, when there were riots in Washington, D.C. over an instance of police brutality, Jen wrote a letter to someone in Bratmobile saying, oh, you know, what we need is a girl riot. And so then when everybody got over to D.C. that summer, that, that phrase stuck with people because the pair, was, the pair of words was so evocative. That's Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front about the Riot Girl punk movement on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We'll continue our discussion after a short break, then Jim and I review new albums from Drake and Radiohead.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with my partner Greg Cott, and we've been talking about the history and legacy of the Riot Girl punk movement with Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front. Riot Girl had its roots in the Northwest in the early 90s, and the term has come to mean something much broader when we talk about women and rock ever since. Musically, though, it, w- it was a very specific place and time and sound. Sarah, I think it would be great if we could have you play rock critic for a minute and point out the key musical touchstones for people not familiar with the original Riot Girl sounds. If you had to pick five definitive recordings, what would they be? Okay, number one has to be Bikini Kill, the CD version of the first two records mm-hmm. on which all of their major anthems come out. Close second behind that would be the seven inches that they um, recorded with Joan Jett in 1993 with songs like New Radio and Demi Rep. These are just brilliant songs, and I think that they find the band at the height of its powers and also starting to embrace more of the ambiguity that we talked about before. first records are very, you know, rights, rights, you do have rights. Like, yeah, yeah. Get it? <laughs> it's a little much, but meant so much to people. But then creatively, on um, turn the song down, turn the static up, we start to have an embrace of multiplicity, of complexity, recognizing that that can actually coexist and fruitfully must coexist with the sort of like political doctrinaire attitude that motivates the the Bikini Kill project at his heart. So those two recordings for Bratmobile, you know, Potty Mouth, the full-length record that they put out on Kill Rock Stars is just this, like, marvelous... I, I mean, the image that I get is, like, there's a punching bag, like, hanging from a wall, and every song is just like someone punches it from the left, from the right. From the, the, the songs are about 40, 55 seconds long. so free and gleeful and snotty and obnoxious and beautiful and it's it's perfect like driving around in the summer music for heavens to betsy 
And Heaven Sabetsy is, of course, the first band of Corin Tucker, who would go on to form Slater Kinney. Mm-hmm. So it's really like the seeds of this fabulous voice, and everything is really already there in these early recordings. They put out a seven inch called These Monsters Are Real, and it's got like three or four songs on it. And I just think that they're pop gems pierced through with blood-curdling screams Mm -hmm. every so often when the pressure of expressing what they're trying to express just gets too much and the only thing you can do is just be like, five records and I guess the fifth would be Huggy Bear taking the rough with the smooch. Huggy Bear was the British exemplars of Riot Girl. They were a co-ed punk band very influenced by situationism, by Avital Ronell. Hugely intelligent, literate and um, delinquency and excess and cacophony and free jazz and Dada are all mixed up in Huggy Bear's music. And I'm taking the rough with the smooch is this 10-inch record that just like blazes through all of it magnificently. That's the fifth recording that I will say. And these are the, you know, these four bands, Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, Heavens to Betsy, and Huggy Bear are kind of the canonical Riot Girl bands, bands that considered, whose members considered themselves linked in with the phenomenon in some way, as opposed to, you know, there were many loud bands of strong women in the early 90s who never felt connected with Riot Girl, even though they would get lumped in. You know, L7, Babes in Toyland, Hole, they would very much get lumped in. And part of my... Um, project in writing the book was to reclaim a little bit of specificity because when you make Riot Girl mean loud girl bands of the early 90s, what you're losing is the grassroots element of it and the zines and the the fact of these like legions of teenage girls who were making feminism their own, making their lives their own via feminism. That gets lost when you're like, oh yeah, it was just this bunch of fans. It dissipated in, in, in the mid-90s. Disintegrated. I mean, Riot oh, Girl was kind of yeah, gone. I was going to say dissipated might be a little kind. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just <laughs> it, it imploded. What's the legacy been, Sarah? One lasting legacy is what I was talking about at the beginning of the interview, the fact that in underground DIY, indie, whatever you want to call them, circles, Female input and creativity has become a given. It's no longer strange to see a woman playing music. Ian Mackay from Fugazi told me that, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, people would be like, oh, I went to see this show and there was a girl bassist. Like, it was strange. At this point, it's strange if you go to a show and every band is all male. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a recognition now 
that has carried forward from Riot Girl that there's also a marvelous kind of power that is quite moving in female creative community. When, you know, when a woman gets on stage and makes a ton of noise, she's breaking rules mm. about how to be a woman. And that idea of freedom and that idea that the rules don't hold you it spreads to everybody in the room. Everybody feels that sense of possibility breaking open. And that has just happened more and more since Riot Girl, and I think Riot Girl gets the credit. We've been talking to Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl revolution. Sarah, thank you for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much for having me. Greg, we thought we would end our discussion of Riot Girl by picking some of our favorite songs associated with this movement. Sarah just gave us some of hers. I have to say, I don't know if you agree, that I think that the second wave of bands formed by some of the key players in the initial Riot Girl explosion, that second wave was more interesting and rewarding musically than the first. The first wave Riot Girl bands were really important for the idea, the spirit, the statement. I like the music of the bands that they formed later better. Would you agree? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the Riot Girls were intentionally more insular. They were speaking to a very specific audience at a very specific time, and it really wasn't meant to have a wider audience. But it certainly changed soon after, and the influence it had is still going on today. The number of great bands that have been inspired by Riot Girl, I think, are its real legacy. One of the most important out of the Pacific Northwest was Sleater Kinney, a band that had a run from 1994 through 2006. Slater Kinney then reformed in 2014, and we had the band in the studio last year. Two of the key players from that original Riot Girl movement, Corin Tucker, who was originally in the Riot Girl band Heavens to Betsy, and Carrie Brownstein, the guitar player, who was in a queer core band called Excuse 17, sort of an ancillary movement to the Riot Girls. They teamed up for what was initially a side project, formed Sleater Kinney, started writing some songs. By the time of their second album, which was called Call the Doctor in 1996, they were a full-fledged band getting nationwide attention. The drummer on that record was a woman named Laura McFarlane. She was later replaced by a monster drummer, Janet Weiss, and that trio of, of Weiss, Brownstein, and Corin Tucker, I think was musically as sophisticated and as powerful as any rock band over the last decade. But I want to focus on that second record, Call the Doctor, from 1996, and the album that really sort of broke them to a much larger nationwide audience. The song from that record that really jumps out, I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone, it's a song about lust, it's a song about affirmation, I'm the queen of rock and roll, they say. At the same time, they're invoking their heroes, Joey Ramone, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. They're saying, hey, I want to be a picture on your bedroom door just like that. It was an extremely powerful message to be putting out to young women, but I also think it resonated on the level of great rock and roll. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman, you could relate to this song because of its sheer power and the message that it was putting out, the affirming message it was putting out. Here's I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone from Sleater Kinney on Sound Opinions.
I want to be your Joey Ramone from Sleater Kinney, one of the best of the post-Riot Girl bands. Jim, what have you got for us? Well, Greg, I think uh, Kathleen Hanna really was at the center of the whole Riot Girl explosion. And after her original band, Bikini Kill, came to an end, everybody wondered what would she do next. I think she zigged when everybody thought she was going to zag. Initially, she was going to do a solo project called Julie Ruin. And then with two bandmates, Joanna Fateman and Sadie Benning, it kind of morphed into La Tigra. A completely different sound, really, from Bikini Kill, Electro Clash, taking the punk rock attitude and energy and bringing it to electronic dance music, maintaining the feminist politics and, and the broader political messages, but, but with a little more sense of humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a lot more joyful, a lot more fun, a lot more funny, and just absolutely explosive. I love the first album. I think it's a real classic. And Hot Topic, I think, is the song that really exemplifies what La Tigra was trying to do. This is a song that stops and pays homage to a long list of heroes, visual artists, poets, other musicians, most of them female, but not all of them. People like Sleater Kenny, okay, his name dropped. Angela Davis, Gertrude Stein, Billie Jean King, The Slits, Aretha Franklin, Joan Jett. It's just Kathleen having a really good time talking about all of her heroines and some of her heroes and saying, don't you stop, please don't stop, we won't stop. In other words, this this energy, this movement, this vitality has to continue. Everybody do your part. Don't give up, which I think is a pretty good place to end our discussion of Riot Girl. Here is La Tigra with Hot Topic on Sound Opinions.
That is Hot Topic by Latigra on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. After the break, we'll review new albums from Drake and Radiohead. But first, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and let us know what you think about Riot Girl and its legacy. Sound Opinions. That is a little bit of Burn the Witch from the new Radiohead album, A Moon-Shaped Pool, the ninth album in this band's career, Greg. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say a few bands have stretched the boundaries of rock more in the last couple of decades, have had both critical and commercial success for being so strange and constantly pushing the envelope as Radiohead. Same five members from The Roots in 1991. Colin Greenwood, Johnny Greenwood, Ed O'Brien, Phil Selway, and of course, that unique voice, Tom York. And now, nine albums later, you know, they've slowed down a little bit. This has been a long wait, five years from their last album, King of Limbs, but they do convene and work methodically and slowly. What have they given us? I think we just have to play a track and then jump right in. This is Identikit by Radiohead from a moon-shaped pool on Sound Opinions. Sweet-faced ones with nothing left inside
is Identikit from the new Radiohead album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Jim, a uh, couple of thoughts, and they may seem completely off the wall about this record. I think that Tom York is having a Judy Garland moment. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. This is the most psychedelic Radiohead record. He is looking beyond the rainbow mm-hmm. to a place to escape, to get to the next life, to get inside his head and travel to new worlds. In terms of what he's singing about, he's just gone through a major breakup. Yeah. The planet is dying. That's been one of Tom's uh, obsessions for, for he's, decades. He's been fretting about that for some time. <laughs> yes, it yeah. is. And then he surrounded himself with these beautiful arrangements. I assume that Johnny Greenwood is primarily responsible. Johnny Greenwood has been doing these uh, film soundtracks for the last decade plus, and he's really bringing in his knowledge of scoring strings and voices into this record. You really hear those two worlds merging for the first time fully on a Radiohead record. The strings on this record, the string arrangements on this record are beautiful. In some cases, they can be very disturbing, as in with Burn the Witch, that opening track on the record, but they're also about creating these new worlds that I was talking about. The other image that sort of jumps out at me on this record, and it's funny because most people probably will never actually see the cover the way we process music these days, but the cover reminds me of a black and white negative of the Yes album, Fragile. I saw that That Roger that. Dean yeah. cover. And there's a bunch of people that agreed with me and a bunch of people said that I'm nuts. But hear me out. Where's Tom taking us? He's taking us to another world in this record. You know, people are saying, oh, it's such a disappointing record. There's no guitars on it. Well, there, there are lots of guitars on it. They just don't sound like guitars. <laughs> it, the mix on this record is incredible. It's almost three-dimensional. It's Nigel Godrich, yeah. the band, they've created this idea of transforming yourself, moving on to a new world. I love it. I got lost inside this record, and it's one of those records that I love to listen to beginning to end. The more I listen to it, the more I like it. It's a buy-it record for me. Well, I'll agree with your buy-it, Greg. I do understand what skeptics are saying. I teach reviewing the arts to college kids, and I always say don't make the mistake of reviewing the album or piece of art that you wish the artist had made. Review what's in front of you. Personally, you have one of the best drummers in rock and roll in Phil Selway, and he's barely on this album. He's playing like brushes, and then there's those electronic glitches carrying the rhythm. The beauty is there, but it takes a while. It took me about five or six listens to begin to really be entranced by what's happening here. It is a chamber folk record. Mm -hmm. This has more in common with Nick Drake than Radiohead of Kid A or OK Computer. I'm fine with that. We just had Bill McKibbins a few shows ago on Sound Opinions talking about the need for rock and roll to step forward and give us the anthems that will crystallize the Save the Planet movement, save us from global warming. And Tom York had performed at a big event in Paris that McKibbins was helming during the Paris talks on climate change. You know, he's long been a very passionate voice for trying to save this planet, but here he does it with a whisper rather than a roar. I kind of wish he'd been on the barricades waving the flag, giving us an anthem. But again, that negates what's in front of us. What's in front of us is a complex and beautiful album that rewards any time you spend with it. So a double buy it for Radiohead. Look, mama hit my phone and said rap's no good. Better than it telling me the check's no good. Now they want to act like I do no good. Cause I really did more than I should I made a decision last night that I would die for it Just to show the city what it takes to be alive for it That is Drake with a track called Nine from his latest album, Views Audrey Drake Graham, Toronto-born 
six Grammy Awards, four number one albums, two number one mixtapes last year, 24 top 40 singles. Not a bad career in hip-hop. Kind of a late starter because he started out as an actor. Everybody was saying, oh, that guy from Degrassi, the next generation. (laughs) People don't mention that anymore. Drake has become, if not the biggest name in hip-hop, certainly one of the biggest in the last five or six years. He started out as a protege, somewhat, of Lil Wayne, and since has eclipsed Lil Wayne with a series of records, beginning with a 2009 EP, So Far Gone, spawned a number of singles on that record. His first studio album, Thank Me Later, went multi-platinum. His second album, Take Care, went multi-platinum. His third studio album, Nothing Was the Same in 2013, that went multi-platinum too. Then there was this long wait. He kept teasing views for a number of years and instead went sideways a little bit. A couple of what he called mixtapes last year. If you're reading this, it's too late. And what a time to be alive, a collaboration with Future. Both of those went number one. He is an arena-level headliner. We're talking about a guy who can play multiple shows in hockey rinks in just about every city in America right now. So with much anticipation, Views is finally out. We're going to play a track from it first before we review it. It's called One Dance from Drake on Sound Opinions. Grips on your ways, front way, back way, you know that I don't play. Streets not safe, but I never run away, even when I'm away. OT, OT, there's never much love when we go OT. I pray to make it back in one piece. I pray, I pray. That's why I need a one dance. Got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time before I go. Higher powers taking a hold on me. I need a one dance. Got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time before I go. Higher powers taking a hold on me. Strength and guidance, all that I'm wishing for my friends. Nobody makes it from my ends. I had to bust up the silence. You know you gotta stick by me. Soon as you see the text, reply me. I don't wanna spend time fighting. We got no time, and that's why I need a one dance. Got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time before I go. Higher powers taking a hold on me. I need a one dance. Got a Hennessy in my hand One more time for I go Higher powers taking hold on me That is one dance from the new Drake album, his fourth official, not counting the many mixtapes. It's called Views, the album. Greg, I'm just going to say it. This dude is a mope. I don't want to hang out with him. I don't want to listen to him anymore. He has now given us four albums and a lot of peripheral releases complaining about things that other human beings would see as cause for celebration. He's so rich he can go to any nightclub, get behind any velvet rope, and drink any bottle of booze he chooses, be surrounded by women, you know, and he's the only one in charge of his own life. And instead of celebrating any of this, he complains about it nonstop. Complains about women nonstop. Complains about his miserable life being a superstar nonstop for a completely stultifyingly boring, eventually 82 minutes. The good things about Drake's albums, and the track we just played is one of the better ones, One Dance, come from his longtime musical collaborator, Noah Forty Shabib. But even that, we are now 
is seeing an entire career, all this music he's released, all of it that's gone multi-platinum, as you said, based on one idea by Kanye West on one album, 808s and Heartbreak. He has done that mid-tempo, sort of uh, droning, introspective, inward-looking hip-hop and other people have as well. You know, somebody like The Weeknd or Frank Ocean has taken off from that idea that Kanye broke the ground for, but they've taken it in new directions. Drake ain't doing nothing new, and he's certainly not talking about anything new. As far as I'm concerned, a trash it album. Well, you're absolutely right in that he took Kanye's idea and ran with it, and actually, I think, did some really nice work with it. And I like the fact that he built a sound, basically just him and a couple of producer friends from the Toronto area, 40 being the primary producer, again on this record, and built their own world around it. And for a while there, I really liked the way he would sort of walk that line between vulnerability and whininess. Just when you thought the guy was going overboard, he'd pull you back in with something really personal. Here he just sounds petulant too often. It's like exactly what you said in terms of, here's this rich guy complaining about his life, and, and he's you know whining about these girlfriends, and you kind of go... Dude, you know, <laughs> really, is that is that what's so important to Let you right now? Let me tell you about real problems, buddy. <laughs> I'm telling you. You know, many people have said this is an emo rapper. He's been emo from the start in a lot of ways, and he's gotten a lot of mileage out of it, but it's really getting old now. The lyrical content is one thing, but I think the sound has sort of gotten to the point where it's not going anywhere. This is a boring record. I mean, you've got 80 minutes of atmosphere here. The thing gets going right in the middle when you have these three Caribbean-flavored tracks, you know, Controla, Too Good, anything with Rihanna on it's almost like a like a cliche these days but at the same time Rihanna's the best thing about this record yeah you know and and then that one dance track that Kyla song that is really a great group there's a few moments on this record like that but there's not enough to get over the fact that this seems like a very self-involved very slow moving record and it's starting to feel like Drake's getting old you know it's like he's 29 you know he's over the hill but we've heard it all we've heard this record before Drake it's time to start moving Moving on, and he hasn't gotten there yet. You know, as long as he keeps selling four million records at a pop, there's no reason to change. But as a music critic, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, there's really no reason to own this Drake record. It's a trash it record for me too, Jim. That's a double trash it from uh, both you and I on this new Drake record. But what do you think about it? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, the first of our two-part series honoring Bob Dylan in celebration of his 75th birthday. Greg Sound Opinions this week was produced by Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, some help from Jason Mark, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline. 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim Gregg. This is Nestor from Chicago. I am calling regarding the review of Brian Eno's The Ship. Sorry, Greg, but I agree with Jim. I don't think it's such a great album. Brian does a fantastic job when he's strictly sticking to pop songs or when he's strictly doing ambient music. But sometimes when he mixes the two, it just doesn't come out. This is an album for a hardcore Eno fan. 
not for the general public to listen. If you listen to stuff like uh, Witness from Someday World or Written Forgotten from Small Craft on a Milk Sea, that, that's shining examples of Eno's best works. Thanks. My name is Paul, calling from Philly. I just want to thank you for the program. Uh, Sinabo Say was terrific. Thanks very much, Greg, for mentioning Lonnie Mack, who I used to listen to in Cincinnati. He got that, that vibrato with a magnetone amp. It was the only amplifier at the time that had a pitch-bending vibrato. they did it because it used tubes but they did it and that's where he got that sound he also used the whammy bar but he used that when he was playing solos finally thanks for listing every single bit of music that you play i really appreciate that i wish all programs did that thanks very much take care Hello, this is Harriet Ross, but I live in Lake Forest, Illinois. I was listening to the show about the Beach Boys, and I must say, as much as I loved the Beach Boys, they were sort of my guilty love as I grew up during the Vietnam War, and the Beatles were the people I listened to when I wanted guidance and to get ideas. The Beach Boys I listened to because as most kids of my generation, those of us who could be drafted if we graduated high school. We needed something to make us feel better, and I think that we went for the, the sweet songs by the Beach Boys. Who could not love the Beach Boys and who didn't worship the Beatles? Thank you. Hi, my name is Lisa calling from Cleveland, Ohio. I just listened to the Pet Sounds episode. You guys always impressed. And uh, like that album, I turned 50 this year and was lucky enough to grow up with parents who played a lot of Beach Boys and Beatles. And so I entered my adult life knowing a lot of lyrics. And one incredible influence that I think Pet Sounds can take credit for is I'm, uh, I'm doing dishes the other night. My daughter's on her phone playing music with a streaming service. And uh, I hear her singing... And um, and there's my daughter singing, Wouldn't It Be Nice? So thanks for a great show. Appreciate you guys every week. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800.
We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.